Can I ask you to turn with me, please, in the word of God to 1 Thessalonians and chapter 2, please. 1 Thessalonians and chapter 2. I'll read the first 12 verses. 1 Thessalonians 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So, affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labour and toil, for labouring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preached to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pray once again. Most merciful Father, most loving, most kind, most true, will you grant to us now as we study your word a sense of the, the wonders of grace, an appreciation of the privileges of belonging to a church of Jesus Christ, a sense of the importance of faithfulness in the ministry of the word, a grasp, O oh God, of what we need if we are to stand fast in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Lord, will you hear us, will you guide us, and will you bless us for Christ's sake. Amen. Over the course of the next few weeks, I want to preach to you a developed version of some of the material that I've just preached in the Philippines at the Conference on Ministerial Faithfulness. There are a number of reasons why I think that this would be profitable for you and for me. The first, of course, is that this is in the Bible. And if it's in the Bible, then it is profitable for us. There is good stuff that we can get from any portion of God's word. Another reason is 
that over the course of the next two or three weeks, we're going to have some uh, pastors in our midst because of the honest workmen on each of the Lord's days, each side of that uh, study week. And I thought it would be helpful for them also to have something that would be perhaps of specific relevance to them and their congregations in the places to which they go. But it may also be that there are uh, men here and boys who, growing up into men, may in due course find useful a study in ministerial or pastoral character and faithfulness. We need to know what our standards and expectations might be. Some of you have come from churches or backgrounds where you have not had exposure to a model of faithful pastoral ministry and you may not know what you're entitled to or what you should expect even in preparation i was becoming more conscious uh, thinking primarily now of the time in the philippines that i am studying this passage after 20 years of service as a pastor in this place and it is good then for us at least from time to time to be congregationally calibrated to what is expected of the minister of the gospel in the congregation of the saints, what I am expected to be and what you are entitled to expect from pastoral labour. We need to have before us regularly this standard of believing and behaving. So I think on a number of levels, this is a profitable subject for us to study. We begin with the words of Andrew Fuller, himself a faithful gospel minister and a supporter of the, the preaching of the gospel, not just close at hand but further afield, who said of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 that if I wished to be impressed with a pattern of a Christian minister, I would study the second chapter of this epistle. So you have here a man of prodigious understanding and experience saying, if I want to have a model or a pattern of what a Christian minister looks like, then I would turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, not exclusively, but here I will find a portrait of a true man of God. He also actually said that if I wanted to know what a true church would look like, I'd study the first chapter of the epistle. And so you've got these two things holding together because it's important to recognise that you, you cannot have a shepherd, an under-shepherd, without sheep. There are some men who take to themselves the title of minister or pastor, but they don't care for any particular flock. And here is a man then who is among God's people. And the Lord God had made his ministry effective together with his two companions as they open this letter, Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 1, our coming to you was not in vain. It was not empty. It didn't produce nothing. It wasn't just a, a load of hot air, that there was a substantial outcome as a result of our coming to you there in Thessalonica. God made us effective. Our coming to you was not in vain, and you yourselves know that. 
So we're asking then the question, Paul is answering the question, what lies behind the ministry that was effective in Thessalonica? What kind of character and what kind of labour was shown by Paul and Silas and Timothy? Now this is not a theoretical question. It wasn't in Thessalonica and it isn't here in Crawley. Because Paul here, as so often, needs to make a connection between the credibility of the messenger and the credibility of the message that he preaches. You think, for example, of how galling it is and how the media rubs its hands when you have a politician who preaches family values and then is found to have been conducting multiple affairs behind his wife's back. Well, how, how can you take seriously the promotion of some kind of moral virtue when the man himself is seen, known, evidenced to be someone who doesn't even believe and live according to the very things that he proclaims? And the trouble is that it can work vice versa. That if you can smear the man who's making that claim, even if he himself is an upright man, then you might be able to cast doubt on the things that he is telling you. And that's what's going on in Thessalonica, and that's what happens in so many churches. If you cannot first attack the message, what you can do is bring down the messenger undermine him in the sight of God's people. So you begin to, to, to spread some rumours about Paul and Silas and Timothy and the kind of motives that they might have and the kind of uh, underhand dealings that they have carried out. And it seems then that in Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul was facing rumours about his personal and his pastoral integrity. And he was concerned lest the accusations that were being made and the doubts that could then have crept in with regard to his character and his conduct would cut the nerve of his usefulness. And some of you in this or from other congregations will know precisely how that works. When you stop trusting the elders of the church, when you can no longer have confidence in the man who preaches the gospel, when you begin to listen perhaps to some of the things that are being said, when somebody pours poisonous gossip into your ears, when somebody begins to impute evil motives to the man who, men or man who preach and teach, you know how hard it gets then to receive both the public and the private ministry of the word. Distance creeps in. Suspicion begins to develop. I've known what it is. Even with some of you, without going into any detail, we've had to work through things where somebody has spoken to you and, and it has cut the nerve of usefulness. It has undermined confidence between the under-shepherd and the sheep, maybe congregationally or individually or in families. It's especially difficult in today's day and age where there is so much pastoral unfaithfulness. Some of us have wept because of men that we have known personally who have walked apparently faithfully and then have abandoned the truth as it is 
in Jesus. There are some particularly prominent and painful examples. And you know how easy it is. You might know hundreds of faithful ministers. But you know how painful it is when you know the one or the two or the five or the ten who've fallen away from the truth that they once preached. Sometimes they've just decided it doesn't mean anything to them anymore. Sometimes they've been living a double life. And again, it's easy to fear. Who's going to be next? Can we really trust anybody? Trust, you see, is essential in pastoral ministry. Or both instruction and example are undermined. There needs to be at least some platform from which a true and faithful minister of the gospel can say, do as I say and do as I do. Or, to use more scriptural language, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now, there need be no pride in that language. I often think that today we've, we've almost got some kind of twisted version of pride where, where someone who says, like the Apostle, well, the Apostle Paul could say it, brothers and sisters, if you're a mature Christian, you should be able to say it. You should be able to say to, to infant Christians, to young believers who've not had the benefits or the experience or the teaching or, or simply the time in the way that you've had, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. That's not the same as saying, I'm great, do what I do. It's saying, if I am following Jesus, and insofar as I am following Jesus, it is both good and safe and proper for you to follow me. You're following my example insofar as I follow his example. And brother, sister, if you can't say that, you should be asking, what's wrong with me? How have I grown so little and made such little progress that I cannot invite a younger believer to walk with me and to learn how to serve God in their generation? So, Paul appeals to knowledge. And you see that again and again in these opening verses. The knowledge is the knowledge that God has of him and together with it, the knowledge that the church has has of him and Paul wants to emphasize that that is uh, there's integrity there that there's a stability there that there's a, a common ground first of all then we need to look at this matter of ministerial faithfulness or pastoral trustworthiness and Paul does it on the foundation of a life that is lived out before God and men so he can go back for example to verse 9 when he says about uh, Macedonia and Achaia, that the people to whom he then went declare concerning us, the preachers, what manner of entry we had to you, the Thessalonians, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Paul says this is a matter of public record. Everybody can see the effectiveness of the ministry of the word among you. So that we don't even need to preach the gospel in some places. Because your reputation's gone ahead of us. And people say, that's the gospel. That's what it does. When that word is preached, God's people are called to him out of the world. And they turn from sin. And they turn from idolatry. And they become a manifestly holy and hopeful people waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. 
So he says, that's why you should be able to follow me in this matter of pastoral trustworthiness. And there's a, there's a battle then that Paul has had to fight to establish such a reputation among God's people. Because there are at least two weapons that are mentioned here that very quickly dent pastoral determination. If you're serving as a minister of the gospel, if you have any particular kind of responsibility in that sphere, even if you're going out on the doors, there are two things that will very easily put you off. One is physical pain or the threat of it, and one is personal shame or the threat of it. Now, mercifully, most of us do not often have to deal with physical pain or its immediate threat as a consequence of our gospel preaching. I don't know, I think, I know I've been manhandled on a door before, I don't know how many of us have been, but if you've been threatened with a good beating at one door, how easy do you find it to knock at the next one? I would suggest at the very least, marginally less so. You have to say, here we go again. When we're preaching on the streets, if there are people who start shouting abuse, the people who maybe come up close and, and scorn and sneer, the people who've spat at us as we've been bringing the word of God to bear, even at that level, it's off-putting, it's distressing. And then there's personal shame, the trampling of a man's reputation, the, the bringing down of his name in the best sense of that word. When, when a man is exposed to slanders and abuses and scorn, those things undermine a pastor's determination to be faithful. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that he says, I'm going to preach another gospel altogether. But the temptation is to trim our sails, we might say, to lose our edge, to draw back a little bit. If something provoked someone before into an angry response, then is there a way that I can recast it the next time I speak so that it doesn't bring about quite the same reaction? Even in this building, I can think of people who've slammed down their Bibles, of all things, smashed them around. I will not listen to this. You think, I've got two more points left to go. Christmas Evans, uh, the great Welsh preacher, only had one eye. Um, it's not why he was great, but he only happened to have one eye. But he once described what the devil would look like if he came to church. And he said he'd come all dressed up and he'd take a prominent place where he could both see and be seen. And it would be the look on his face, the weariness, the, the scorn, the disgust by which he would not only disrupt the preacher but also the, the people who were trying to listen to the preaching, finding a many different ways in which he would communicate how unhappy he was with this particular situation. My friends, we've got to say, Christmas Evans had seen the devil come to church many times. And so have other faithful pastors. And there's a sense of antagonism and aggression. And it spreads among the congregation. What do you do if you've been abused at the door? 
What do you do if someone comes up and rips a strip off you? What do you do as a preacher if someone backs you into a corner after you've preached? And tears you to pieces? Does a complete job on your character? Do you want to step back into the pulpit and preach that same gospel again the following Lord's Day? You understand the temptations. You want to back off. You want to find another way. You tell yourself, I'll be all things to all people. <laughs> and what you mean is, you're going to be a coward. Now imagine what Paul and his companions faced. Because in Acts chapter 16, verses 23 and 24, you come to the, really the conclusion of their, their time in Philippi. They laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, they commanded the jailer to keep them securely, and having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Why had they done that to the Apostle Paul in Philippi? Because he preached the gospel. Because he went and made Jesus Christ known. Now he preached them first of all to the, uh, the Lady Lydia and others who had gathered for prayer by the river. And then there was that confrontation, remember, with the slave girl who was possessed with an evil spirit and her masters who were quite happy for her to suffer in that way as long as it brought them some money. And then they're falsely accused and they're beaten with rods. And that's not the same as, as, as having a spank on your backside. That means you've got a great big stick and there are these great blows that are laid upon their spines and then they're put in the stocks and their legs are stretched apart almost to the point at which their hips are dislocated and then eventually they're released because they're uncondemned Romans and they go bleeding and sore out of Philippi suffering because they've preached the gospel and where's the next stop on the route? Thessalonica. You understand the pressure? What do we now do in Thessalonica? How did things go in Philippi? Well, we were okay when we were just talking to the ladies by the river. Things got a little bit hairy when we ended up confronting people in the marketplace. Why don't we see if there's a nice river in Thessalonica? Why don't we talk to the, you know, the, the nice ladies in Thessalonica and not stir up too much trouble? Why don't we con not confront anybody now? Why don't we just play it easy? Why don't we cut our cloth to avoid what's taking place? Look at verse 2. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God. There's Paul's secret. Bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. And brothers and sisters, not just for pastors in the pulpit, and not just for pastors at the door, and not just for pastors in the home, but all of us who in any way seek to be faithful to Jesus Christ are going to face these kinds of pressures. And they're ramping up in our society. Physical pain and personal shame are weapons that will be used to silence, if possible, the church of Jesus Christ, both in her institutional and in her individual expressions of life in Jesus Christ. We run the same risks. We fight the same battles. We need to resist the same pressures. 
and we need to pursue the same purity. And Satan will not be slow to try to drive wedges, not just without, but within this congregation, and not least between its elders and the members, the other members of the church. So here is the Apostle Paul, and again and again he says, You know. You yourselves know. Chapter 2 and verse 1. Chapter 2 and verse 2. As you know. God tests our hearts. Verse 4. God is witness. Verse 5. As you know. Verse 5. We didn't make these demands from, uh, uh, as apostles of Christ. But you know as he goes on. Uh, verse 11. How we exhorted and charged and comforted and charged every one of you. Paul is saying that this life was laid before the Thessalonians. And my friends, as a pastor, I need to be able to say in measure the same thing to this congregation. That you know that I have lived a certain kind of life before you. What is that life? It involves certain pressures that are rejected and a certain purity that is pursued. We may only be able to deal with the first of these this morning. Look at the pressures that need to be rejected, that Paul rejected, and that a faithful pastor must go on rejecting. And we can summarise them in this way. The great temptation when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, or at least the professing church, is the temptation to a man-centred, self-serving, so-called ministry. Now I say so-called ministry because ministry is service. I suppose you could say, well, if you're serving yourself, you're still in service. But the point is that you're not serving as you ought to be. You are not serving others. And the temptation and the pressure, and some of you have been in congregations where you have seen this and you have known it, is the temptation to a man-centred and self-serving operation. And when I say man-centred, I don't even necessarily mean the man in the pulpit. I mean that out of a fear of men, the man in the pulpit might make the centre of all things the people to whom he preaches, rather than the God whom he serves for their sake. And we'll come on to see that. How then did this temptation to a man-centred, self-serving operation get resisted by Paul? Look at these opening verses. Even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts." For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. For you remember, brothers, verse 9, our labour and toil, labouring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preached to you the gospel of God. 
What then are the pressures that need to be resisted? The first is that of deceit as opposed to true doctrine. Deceit as opposed to true doctrine. Our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit or, or perhaps guile there. This is a careless departure from true doctrine, from the right way. This is somebody perhaps who's making it up as they go along. This is someone who has no regard for the truth of God, who's quite willing to say perhaps what simply tickles the ears of people in front of him, or who is not prepared to speak the truth with accuracy and to make those proper distinctions between what is true and what is false. And Paul says that when we preached to you, we were not marked then by deceit, either this careless ignorance or, as we'll see in a moment, a kind of a, a willful disregard for the things that God has spoken. My friends, you need to be confident that when the word of God is brought to bear, either publicly or privately, that it is indeed the word of God and not the word of man. Now, in the Thessalonians' case, that was wonderfully demonstrated by the Thessalonians themselves. You know, says Paul, later on in this chapter, that when the word of God came to you, you received it not as it seems to be, the word of men, but as it really is, the word of the living God. It hit you because it wasn't a man's devising, but it was of God's revelation. And a pastor, if he is to be faithful, must know and speak the truth as it is in Jesus. The second thing that needs to be resisted is uncleanness as opposed to purity of motive. Now, it's not entirely clear what Paul has in mind here, but again, if you think of the kind of world in which he lived and the kind of world in which we live, at the very least, it's greed. It's an appetite for money. It could also be an appetite for glory. You know, see, later on, that we weren't seeking glory from men. We weren't out simply to elevate ourselves. We didn't just like to be the people who were at the front of the crowd. We weren't entranced by the sounds of our own voices. But when we spoke to you, when we brought the gospel to bear upon you, we were not in any way motivated by an unclean appetite. It may even be, and sadly this would have been as typical of the Thessalonian experience as it is of our own day, that sexual impurity had been imputed to the apostle and his travelling companions. Now you might say, well that, that, that wouldn't happen here. My friends, it happens all the time. Sometimes it happens in places where you're still appalled to see it taking place. Some of you will have heard recently, uh, perhaps of a... And again, the media love to dwell upon this because they love to... I think they know that it's inconsistent for Christians to pursue that kind of immorality. And so when a man like T.B. Joshua, this great Nigerian preacher with his huge compound, is exposed as having 
used his power and his influence again and again and again to take advantage of multiple women who he claimed to have under his pastoral care? Paul says, you need to be confident that there was none of that in me. The men who fly around, I can, I can, you, know, you saw my, the video, I was very glad that I was given a, a seat with extra leg space. I got a whole extra sort of 12 inches to stretch out in. My friends, there are men who call themselves faithful pastors who won't fly in anything except their own private jet. Paul says, that's not what it was about. I didn't come and use the preaching of the gospel as a means to feather my own nest. I didn't come because I thought that I could get my own appetites fed. I wasn't using this to draw people under my influence in a false way. And he says there was no then deceit. There was no guile. There was rather honesty and transparency. That I didn't come to you and, and bait the hook, hiding it in something that was attractive. That I didn't simply try and dazzle you with a, a carnal cleverness of speech. That I didn't want you to listen to me because of my intellectual ability. That I didn't want you to, to, to say that you were Christians. Because if you can't understand what that man's saying, he must be cleverer than the rest of us. And there are preachers who love to speak so as to be applauded for how clever they sound. One of the marks is you can very rarely understand what they've been talking about by the end of it. Paul says we weren't trying to dazzle you with human eloquence as some of the false teachers would have done and as he was being accused of doing. And then he says as well that we were not flatterers. Neither at any time did we use flattering words, verse 5 as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. That goes back to the, uh, the unclean motives. He says we were not flatterers but we were straight talkers. We didn't wear a mask. We weren't hypocrites in your midst. We didn't come then seeking applause from you. If we wanted you to, to like us, we wouldn't have told you the things that we told you. If we'd wanted our own glory, we would have pandered to your appetites. If we were seeking wealth, we would not have been such plain speakers in our dealings with you. But we were not man-pleasers. We rather acted out of integrity. Now, I'm pretty confident that both publicly and privately, there are people in this congregation who have sometimes disliked extremely some of the things that I have said to you. We'll come to the motives that might lie behind that in due course, God willing. But there is a sense in which the fact that I do not tell you only what you need to hear should give you some confidence. Not that you always appreciate it any more than I do when someone speaks to me like that. But you need to be absolutely sure that when I speak to you, there is no flattery in my words. That I am not trying to butter you up. 
that I'm not trying to tell you the things that you want to hear, that I'm not trying to win you over to my corner. Now that doesn't mean, the opposite of flattery is not harshness, it's not brutality. And you come up against sometimes people who say, well, I'm, I'm just being honest. And your temptation may be to say, no, you're not just being honest, you're actually being unkind. There are, there are people who will use honesty as an excuse for verbal brutality. That's not what Paul is talking about. What he's saying is, you could always be sure that when I spoke to you, it would be the truth. That if there was some sin that needed to be identified, I would be willing to deal with it. That if there were some virtue that needed to be celebrated, I'd be ready to identify it. If someone always pours on the syrup, can you trust them? If someone tells you always that you're great, can you believe what they say? Or if someone who you know is absolutely honest with you then says, this is a good thing, doesn't that fill your heart with joy? I don't have a reputation as a syrup pourer. I know that. I remember my younger sister on her wedding day coming down the stairs in my parents' home, dressed in all her finery. I can't remember where I'd been, but I arrived at the front door and it was the first time that I had seen her. And she looked gorgeous. And I told her. And she smiled. Do you know why she smiled? Because she knew that if she looked rotten, I'd have told her. <laughs> now, that may not be a great side of things. <laughs> but she knew that if I said, you look stunning, that I really thought she looked stunning. Why? Because she knew that I wouldn't lie about that. And my friends, that's the kind of relationship that we need to have in this congregation. Not just from a pastor to the members, but between ourselves. That when we speak to one another, it is with integrity and sincerity. That we will not lie to one another. We will not flatter one another. So that when we praise one another, we can take it seriously. When we encourage one another, it's substantial. But when we need to rebuke one another or when we need to stir one another up that we know that those words come from the same stable spirit of love and that the one isn't flattery and the other therefore is not cruelty Paul says you knew that with me what you saw was what you got and what you heard was what I meant and I consistently resisted the pressure to be a flatterer, to speak with guile, to act from unclean motives, and to deceive you in terms of my gospel ministry to bring you to Christ and to lead you on in Christ. If I'm going to stand here and preach the gospel to you, and if you're going to take that gospel from me, 
Do you not need to believe that I will speak true doctrine? That I am marked by pure motives? That my speech is honest and transparent? And that my talk is straight? Why should you believe the Jesus that I proclaim if that's not the case? Why should you heed the instruction that I bring from God's word if you cannot trust me to be this kind of man? Brothers and sisters, this is not a Thessalonian problem. This is not an ancient world problem. It is just as real and just as fierce today as it has ever been. The, the opposite of these things, if you want to put the, the pressures that Paul says, I would not succumb to and paint a picture with them, what does it look like? It looks like a prosperity gospel merchant. It looks like the same kind of men that Paul had to deal with, not just in Thessalonica, but also in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 17. We are not as so many peddling the word of God. This is not a game. And any man who gives you the impression it's a game is not being faithful to your souls. But as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. That's what Paul's saying to the Thessalonians. God is our witness, and you yourselves know. And this spirit of man-centered and self-serving ministry has left a tragic legacy of fallen men. I remember the first time somebody that I knew closely called me up to say, Jeremy, I cannot come and serve in this particular sphere with you because I have sinned against God. I've left my... I broke down in tears. I cried like a baby. And I still wept. You know what's awful? I've run out of fingers and toes. Of men that I have known who have fallen away from the kind of standard of purity and integrity and sincerity. I don't mean they're not Christians anymore. Some of them I don't think ever were believers and they'd fooled us. But some of them succumbed to these particular temptations. You, if you have been long in the way, you will know what that is like. You may have names and faces even now in your memories that bring back heartbreak. Because you thought of men who you once thought you could trust. Men marked by ulterior motives. Men marked by sinful appetites. Men whose guiding principle in the church of Jesus Christ was to avoid anything that looked like trouble. And who secured a kind of shallow peace at the expense of divine truth. Men who were concerned to do nothing more than to cultivate their own reputation. Who wanted their name to be exalted. Who wanted to increase even if it meant that Christ decreased. Men who were interested only in feathering their own nest. Perhaps a constant stream of complaints about the way in which they were treated. I think of a man now. Every single time... He is with a fellow pastor 
He spends all his time complaining about how badly he's been treated and how little he's been paid. You think, what kind of message is that sending? Let, to us, let alone to anybody else. And Paul says, not just I want you to believe, but God knows and you know what kind of man I was among you for your sakes. And my friends, if you want to serve God in any capacity, you will feel these pressures. Sometimes individually, sometimes together, they will be brought to bear upon your soul. At first, only perhaps in very small pieces, a word here, a decision there, a compromise at this point. But Paul says... I made every effort across the board to live before you in such a way that you could know, not just think, but know that I was not this kind of man. It's interesting, isn't it, where he turns when he wants to defend his character and his conduct. He doesn't say, and I certainly could not, you know that I've never made any mistakes. You know that I've never committed any sins. You know that I've always got everything right. Even Paul doesn't say that. And he was an apostle. No, what Paul says is, you know, and God also, what kind of men we were among you. My friends, this is the standard that we must expect and demand amongst ourselves. This is the standard that I, under God, am obliged to pursue and cannot afford at any point to let slip. Why? Because your souls are at stake. Because if you cannot believe that when I speak to you of Christ and him crucified, that he is indeed the saviour of sinners. If I allow by my false conduct or my sinful character, if I allow you to believe that this gospel is a nonsense, that this life is empty, that this is a mere hypocrisy, and some of you have had to battle that. Some of you perhaps have, have known family members who are, it's, it's the proverbial uh, tragedy of the man who's an angel in the pulpit and a devil in his own home. You know what it's like to be around people who say that they are Christians, but the way that they live and the way that they speak sickens you to your stomach. How can I preach Christ to you if in my character and in my conduct I am proclaiming more loudly than I ever can with my words that this is pointless, worthless and empty. That is the way to make a man, a woman, a boy or girl cynical. There's nothing in this. It's the kind of excuse that the world uses to turn its back upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're all hypocrites. Will you pray for me and for the men who we pray that in due course God will bring in among us or raise up in us. 
as shepherds of this flock? Will you pray that we will resist and reject the kinds of pressures that exist as much today as they did in the ancient world in which Paul was serving? To deceit, to uncleanness, to guile and to flattery. Do you know? Remember, not that I'm a perfect man, not that I'm a sinless man, not that I never make any mistakes. I have to ask myself, is this the stamp that I have left in my life? And is this the reputation that I have in this place it's why if you think that there's anything in which I am falling short you need to speak to me it's why you cannot overlook these things in the church of Jesus Christ not just in the pews but especially in the pulpit there can be no space for inconsistent and hypocritical believing and behaving I hope that I can say, you know, not that I'm a perfect man, but that I have laboured not to succumb to these pressures. Why is that so important to me and why should it be important to you? Because I want some of you to believe the gospel that you have yet to believe. I want you to believe the Christ whom I proclaim. And one of the ways that I get a grip upon your conscience is by being the kind of man that Paul said a faithful pastor has to be. And I want you who have believed to be holy people. And I cannot come to you and say, imitate somebody else because it looks like they're following Christ. You need to know that if I'm speaking with you to encourage to exhort, to rebuke, to instruct. That you can rely absolutely upon the words that come from my lips carried along on the current of a life that matches up to that which is required of any faithful pastor of the sheep. My friends, the gospel is too important to be preached by men who don't believe it. The gospel is too important to come from the lips of compromised men. The gospel is too important. The good news of Christ and him crucified. The call, as Paul describes it, to turn to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven. Even Jesus who is delivering us from the wrath to come. That message is life and death. And the church cannot afford a compromised pulpit and a man who does not believe or behave in accordance with what he speaks. When you cannot trust the man in the pulpit, his ministry will be in vain. 
It's one of the ways that Satan will consistently undermine the work of the kingdom. By breaking, destroying, unsettling, distancing God's people from those whom God has given to care for your souls. My friends, I'm not standing here to hide behind the apostle. I hope I can say you know that I am not trying to browbeat anybody. I am as much subject to this word as anybody else and in some senses dealing with this even more so. We together need to be able to, as it were, look outside of ourselves and to see the portrait of a pastor that is painted for us here. And to think, first of all this morning, of the pressures that are consistently rejected so that you can have confidence that with my lips and by my life, the things that you hear concerning Jesus Christ are worthy to be received. And the moment that that message is compromised by a compromised messenger, then you need to act in order to make sure that the gospel comes with purity and with power. But where we can, with confidence, look one another in the eye and say, you know, and God also, what kind of man I was among you for your sake. I plead with you. Believe the good news that is proclaimed. Heed the word that is preached. Take to heart the truth of the gospel. Walk in the ways of Jesus Christ. Let us then live before him in such a way that we are able to say that we know what kind of people we are. That we know what kinds of lives we live that we will not at any point entertain sin, uncleanness, deceit, flattery and guile in our midst. Most of all, it must be that the men who preach the word of God should do so from a position of integrity, purity and sincerity for the sake of Jesus Christ and for the sake of every soul in this place and in this